This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. This is where they meet, in the smoke-filled, dimly-lit coffee houses, in the secret pads where strange words and strange music fill the night. Yeah, dig me, I'm a captain of the Can Kennel Club. A real-life Parisian poodle pompadour. May I sit down? Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, please do. A swinging cat like you is always welcome. What about jazz, you dig? Pop is all right, but I prefer modern. East or West Coast? West. Which one? Dave Brubeck for me. She's crazy, too. In the hidden corners of the city where the rebel set stokes the fires of its rebellion against respectable society. Hey, you. Take a place, daddy -o. You and your phony beatnik friends. I said take a place. Morning, Charlie. El Topo is not a religious film. Cleaning out ventilator shafts, that's their job. Oh, sweet air and pure, what the passengers like to breathe. <laughs> it is a mystic. Somebody else, too. Boiling under the stairs. The mechanical apples and pears. Does your walking up and down for you. That's science, that is. Metroland. The creation of the Metropolitan Railway. Which, as you know, was the first steam underground in the world. In the tunnels, the smell of sulphur was awful. When I was a boy, live in Metroland was the slogan. It meant getting out of the tunnels into the country. For the line had ambitions of linking Manchester to Paris and dropping in at London on the way. That grandiose scheme came to nothing. Out this morning, aren't we? Makes you think. Four hundred and ninety-four trains every day, and they pick a little old ass to start them off. Base to check. Base to check. Are you receiving me? Over. Check to base. I'm receiving you. Base to Jig, the emergency engineer wishes you to go to Park Station where a broken rail has been found. The emergency squad will meet you there. Over. Right. I'm on my way. Out and standing by. Park Station, George. Hi, hi, fellas. There's the gaffer again. Morning, Flo. Morning, Inspector. Oh, no, I thought you were going to wait. Oh, 
Mrs. Face, then. Another time, Mabel. Oh, come on. Of course, he's always got a witty back answer. The trouble is, he never thinks of it till he's left these fluffers miles behind. That's what they're called, fluffers. They're VIPs, too. Not just here to tiddly up the place. This is fire prevention work. If all this dust, paper and fluff was allowed to pile up, you'd only need one spark and woof. And apart from scaring the customers, that wouldn't do the cables much good, neither. First passengers, the haunted ones. Boil them, I suppose, and here's ears. Open us up and switch us on. Tim, I'm here with Roz, and this is Music for Films. This is Music for Films. On Resonance 104.4 FM in London, resonancefm.com for replay, and the live stream, and an archive of our old shows, and our podcast, More Music for Films, is on thebeekeepers.com. Every month we talk to interesting people about the music... And occasionally the films. And the music for films that have changed their lives. And yeah. uh, for this run of music... Or become a brand. What, films that have become a brand? No, or? music becomes part of the brand of the film. Well, yes, of course. That's not what we're talking about. Though, uh, of course, that's a very good example of how classical music has influenced um, film music. And so vice versa. Because John Williams nicked all his ideas for the Star Wars music from, from Martha Bliss, who wrote the music for Things to Come by H.G. Wells, and indeed was consulted by H.G. Wells or consulted H.G. Wells about the whole process of making film and music integrate in the same way that at the same time, without any particular mutual influence, Eisenstein and Prokofiev were doing in uh, Alexander Nevsky. So that's the kind of thing we talk about on Music for Films. Endlessly. And, but today we're actually listening to a sound. Because today we're talking about Midnight Movies, the Scala, the influence of late night transport with the influ- uh, on, on popular culture, in particular the way that London is going to be changed, or possibly not, by the introduction of a 24-hour tube. And we're standing at one of the holy of holies of the London tube. We're standing directly underneath the plaque which reads, in memory of Harry Beck, the originator of the distinctive London Underground map, who lived near here and used the station regularly. The map is used by millions daily and has become recognised as a classic worldwide and though London Transport did not necessarily treat Harry Beck very well at all times nonetheless they do honour him and here we are on Finchley Central directly underneath the plaque waiting for our our train down to the studio and in a way we've taken uh, Harry Beck's map um, which is the the Ark in the Holy yeah. of Holies. Yes. 
and we've uh, slightly um, done our own thing with it ad- added to it decorated it with our own uh, significance because we've made the Scala map why don't you explain to our listeners the, what it is the idea for the Scala map was to signify the colossal influence of London as a whole and London locations by attaching sometimes by slightly spurious or dubious means a movie to every single station on the current version of the underground map Uh, we haven't done the overground yet Um, and this will be part of what we will be doing over the next few months as we did last month with with Mr Bowie yeah we talked about uh, the man who fell to earth and we went to where Bowie was born and grew up in Stockwell whereas this time we started at Finchley Central because of Harry Beck and our movie for the for the month is going to be a very famous short about the London Underground called, called Under Night Streets. Big Brigade coming out now. All got a mouthful of grit and just about ready for a cover. So now their gang, I can get the juice switched on for their stretch. Regular procedure, that is. Governor Ganger speaking. 55 section, all okay. Okay, Frank, thanks very much. It's like this. Once you're absolutely certain everybody's out of the tunnel, you give the okay to the line clearance bloke in the substation. He fills up a chit and signs it, and then another bloke in the central control room switches on. Jim here. Good morning, Bert. We're giving up the westbound now. Right, Jim. That's 24 westbound, all clear. So yeah, we, we played a bit of Under Night Streets, made in 1958, for a British transport film at the start of the show, and we also played a bit of John Betjeman's Metroland, famous yes. BBC film. But what we're going to play out, play it, play it, play it, play now, in honour of where we are, is Finchley Central. And Finchley Central, ten long stations, from Gilders Green, Change and Camden Town. I thought I'd made you... But I'm afraid you only let me down So those were the dulcet tones of the new vaudeville band and, of course, Finchley Central. Yes, where we have just been. Because we couldn't really make a programme about Finchley Central without playing that track. A programme which started at Finchley Central and then heads off in all directions on every conceivable line. Much like the London Underground map itself. Exactly so. Or indeed, the map of all of the films that we're talking about. On the Scala map. On the Scala map. So before we start talking about Harry Beck and how the London Underground map that he designed could be seen as a kind of uh, a mandala or a kind of an an organic plan of London cinema over a century, particularly kinds of films we're interested in, cult films or midnight movies. Specialised taste films. Some of them, a little bit. Some of them quite... um, Risqué. Risqué. How much each? Uh, five shillings each, sir. Oh, well, I'll have that one. Yeah. Oh, and that. Uh, uh. <laughs> How much would the lot be? Uh, to you, five pounds, sir. Five pounds. 
Mm. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, sir. I'll make it four pounds ten, and I'll throw in the Times and the Telegraph. How's that? Thank you very much. Yeah, well, let me wrap it for you, sir. Thank you. Shall I, shall I put you on our mailing list? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'll, I'll look it again. Very well, sir. Well, he won't be doing the crossword tonight. Well, look who's here, Cecil Beaton. Now, I want you to give me the primitive desires inherent in womanhood since time began. Oh, you want a bit of leg? So the film that we're talking about today, Under Night Streets, which was a British transport film, uh, which means it was made by Transport for London to promote... Transport, transport for London. London. The, the fact that it, it ran a transport service and provided all these um, amenities to the public, and it was made in 1958. There's two things I wanted to talk about before we, we delve into the films on the Scala map. Uh, one is about the film itself. Now, what about... Um, Leslie Dwyer. Well, they've got one of those people who was started off in the mu in, in music hall when there was music hall at the age of fifteen. Yeah, and he sounds terribly artificial. He sounds like a posh person playing a, an ordinary cheeky chappy, but actually he's a cheeky chappy playing a cheeky chappy because even. We're so used to 1950s stuff sounding inauthentic that even someone who's genuinely a quasi-working-class second- or third-generation musical artist sounds like he's putting on a voice. And he says, hello, governor, and it sounds like a quotation, but actually he's just saying, hello, governor. The chorus must be knocking off by now. Up you get Gina. What you are, Madeline? Whoops. So, very much. Hello, chap. All set, Governor. Okay. There's a very interesting thing about looking at all these London films over 100 years of cinema, where you notice that the way in which actors or people in the films are able to navigate between a kind of brogue, patois, in some yeah. cases, an argot. An argot. But it's because it's become a, me, a, a, a dramatic thing, a thing people do in theatre and film and later on in television, it doesn't reflect reality, it reflects itself. I mean, the fact that Leslie Dwyer had been in In Which We Serve... With Noel Coward. With Noel Coward and Dickie Attenborough. Now, my policy's easy. And if there are any here who have served with me before, they'll know what it is. Are there any old shipmates of mine here? Oh, glad to see you again, Reynolds. And Adams. And Blake. And Coombe. Who's that small fellow hiding behind Chief Stoker? Parkinson, sir. Parkinson, you were coxswain of the all-comers whaler in the Valletta, weren't you? I was that, sir, when we won the all-comers cup in the 1936 regatta. And fell into the ditch when you got to the ship. <laughs> well, there are enough old shipmates to tell the others what my... He sounds is. inauthentic, even though she is. Because... Because he was Authentic. able, like Barbara Windsor, like you could say Noel Coward, he was able to simultaneously speak to a musical crowd or speak to the home crowd, but he was also able to speak more to a West End or yeah. posh crowd. And 
needless to say, as the 60s wore on, that became less and less doable because the culture changed. And authenticity became a cash cow rather than that shared, that shared slightly inauthentic uh, idiolect. I'm speaking to you from the gardening centre, Zion House, Brentford, Middlesex, England. Um, I should like to ask this gentleman a question or so. Uh, first of all, who are you? My name is George Spigot. George Spigot. Uh, what do you do? I'm a devil and um, I tempt people mainly during the daytime and during the night time. I see. Uh, are you the only devil? Do you have any other partners? I've got a few hobgoblin sprites, sort of minor evil bodies around the place, bad fairies, one kind or another. I think trolls, small trolls about that big, which jump around and throw spinach in people's eyes, but uh, otherwise, very little. They're rather boring. I'm the main devil. I'm the most evil person in the world. We have come here to pay our respects to great Aunt Nelly. She brought us up properly and taught us loyalty. I want you to remember that during these next few days. I also want you to remember that if you don't come back with the goods, Nelly here will turn in her grave and, likely as not, jump right out of it and kick your teeth in. You can have to move the button off. Just move the button off, yeah? Yeah. Up on the down, yeah? What do you hear about the trouble last night? I'm business with people probably me or Taylor. I've got an artist that's giving me problem and he's giving me a hard time, so I had to send my two cousins them to sort him out. What is the guy name, the artist name? His name Bucky Ranks. Bucky Ranks? I'm walking to your calm down now. Stop! It's just you can't hear the guaylo. Are you named Brownie Promotion? Yeah, I'm in named Brownie Promotion. A woman? Yeah, a woman. You're a problem with that. A woman here you now. Hello, that's Harold Turner. The name play called it Sapphire Street. But everyone called it Chopper Street. Because a policeman had his head chopped off down there and put down a drain. Funny. Police never come down there after that. Our house was right in the middle. What's this? A housing development for Nudie. Lovely. No, it's not sun, it's horrible. But it's looked. Yeah, but you, sir, with your varying unnatural dignity, can only be. I am Hubert. I do not know my last name. I was found in a snowdrift, clutching a tiny bundle, and on my finger, no wedding band. Uh, do you like riddles? Which is why, of course, he ended up playing a carnival barker in a, a carnival of monsters on Doctor, uh, on Doctor Who, yeah. where which was one of the last places where you could be that slightly affected artificial voice because it's uh, because it's genre because everyone in it was playing freaks and monsters anyway. But he understands the Polari. Listen to this. Hey, <laughs> the Tellurian carnival lingo. Watch. 
The lorry, the corny. I beg your pardon. Vard at the Bona Pallone. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Nancy Dinari round here, you Jules. <laughs> I, I must apologize. I'm afraid I do not understand oh, your language. You understand, all right. You're a showman, the same as me, ain't you? <laughs> you a showman, sir? Allow me to introduce myself. I am the great Vaughan. And this beautiful young lady is Scherner, my assistant. Delighted, Miss Scherner. I am the doctor. Doctor. Great title, you know. Doctors, professors, always... It'll be interesting to see whether, as social mobility goes away, and there are fewer and fewer actors from working-class backgrounds because of money issues, whether we get a new sort of artificial working-class idiolect in, dra in drama. So this would be a sort of a, a kind of thespian equivalent of Dame, Damon Albarn from Blur. That yes. He kind of a affects this kind of... Um, Estuary English. Estuary English will become Mummerset. I mean, because nobody... Has anyone ever talked like actors when they're playing country folk? I think not. And then I'm happy for the rest of the day. Safe in the knowledge there will always be a bit of my heart devoted to it. So I'm quite intrigued in terms of uh, this idea of uh, an authentic working class or an authentic London accent and, and, and this film, Under Night Streets. Yes, because there still, in a sense, was an authentic accent because there were a lot of authentic accents. I mean, in My Fair Lady and in Pygmalion, Higgins can pin down where in London people are from. Whereas now you couldn't pin down where in South East England people are from. It's the same that in I spent my teens in Yorkshire. When I moved to Yorkshire, each town, each village had a slightly different way of talking. So if you were in Leeds and someone came from Castleford or from Pontefract, you could tell who was from Castleford and who was from Ponty. Um, you couldn't do that now because one of the things that breaks that down is, of course, fast transport. Because if you're constantly moving around a metropolis, local accents gradually blend into each other. I mean, how now Brooklyn has become full of hipsters. How long will anything that can be called a Brooklyn accent last? Now that uh, rapid transport brings people into the bridge and tunnel people, into New York from all over the, 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 the broader metropolitan area, how, how long can anything as specific as, as the old Brooklyn accent last except as something terribly artificial that people put on? It's one of the downsides of rapid transport, which brings us inevitably back to the tube, back to the underground. You know, that the underground has a history and it's a complicated history and the underground and the underground map is a result of a lot of quite 
arbitrary decisions. You know, there are ghost stations. There are Londons that never were. Beyond Neasden, there was an unimportant hamlet where for years the Metropolitan didn't bother to stop. Wembley. Slushy fields and grass farms. Then, out of the mist arose Sir Edward Watkins' dream, an Eiffel Tower for London. It was to be 150 feet higher than the Eiffel Tower, but when at last it reached above the trees and the first stage was opened to the crowds, the crowds weren't there. They didn't want to come. Money ran out. The tower lingered on, resting and rusting, until it was dismembered in 1907. This is where London's failed Eiffel Tower stood, Watkins Folly, as it was called, here, on this Middlesex turf. And since then, the site has become quite well known. There's a sense in which, and this is me going on about my King Charles head, as it were, there's a sense in which one of the reasons we're talking about Harry Beck and his map and about movies about the underground is that they f collectively form what I call a thick text. That's to say, it, they, are, they have a sense of the contingent about them. They're a joint enterprise that when you watch something like Beneath, the cities, Beneath Night Streets, you are watching all, all those things that it refers to. It's part of the, the language of, of, of British documentary making. It feels at places like one of the classic documentaries. I'm not sure you could argue it's a classic documentary, a classic documentary short, but it's significant that it's losing the confidence that the document, the great documentaries of the late 1930s and 1940s had had, that in order to impart a sense of the dramatic, a sense of urgency, they have, halfway through the film, to create a largely spurious crisis where there is a broken rail which has to be fixed because we've only got half an hour before the first train runs. We need to get this rail picked up and replaced in half an hour with the clock ticking and you go, oh, for heaven's sake. What's the matter there, Jack? It's that broken rail. The inspector says they'll be a bit late. Well, give me the wire as soon as you can. You're booked to clear at half past four, you know. OK, right. Right, goodbye. Yeah, it's a completely fraudulent bit of narrative urgency. There's always been this um, relationship in cinema between the film camera and the film projector, the, the arguably the last machines of the machine age, and trains. So the first ever cut from a piece of film of outside 
is of Ditchling Tunnel, where, near where I'm from in Brighton, uh, and that cuts to the first ever shot in a studio, cutting from yeah. an exterior shot, which is a couple kissing in a train carriage in George Albert Smith's A Kiss in the Tunnel. Perhaps surprisingly to our eyes, the Lumiere's original caused a sensation wherever it was screened and prompted remakes all over the world. It danced like an arrow straight towards you. It seems it was about to rush into the darkness where you were sitting and then reduce you to a mangled sack of skin and splintered bones and then destroy the whole of the whole building. And, of course, the Lumiere Brothers' 50-second film of a steam train approaching a station at La Chiota in France. Which, which of course, gets that glorious reference in that ludicrously overcut film, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, when we zoom into a peak, the eye, not the literal eye, but the eye feather of a peacock, and come out the other side on a train in Transylvania... Which has to be one of the silliest cuts in the whole of cinematic history. And yet is glorious because it's one of those cuts. Which brings us to things that are horror horror and do happen on the on, on the on the underground. Obviously the classic horror film and te- before that television show to which the Underground London Underground is key is Quatermass and the Pit. So let's listen to a bit of Quatermass and the Pit and let's uh, go off on a little ramble, a little audio daydream as we listen to other clips from films on the Scala Map or, or linked to our Scala Map films, which are inspired by what you must mind when you mind the gap. What is in the gap? <laughs> Look at this! Oh, it's a skull. You mean off some dead fella? Looks like stone to me. Hey, look at those dead eyes. Get a load of those gnashers. <laughs> hey, careful with it. It's a fossil. It may be worth money, you know that? This is the terror-stricken service of the BBC. Today, at approximately this afternoon, a discovery was made on the site of the Notting Hill Gate site of the government's new dig-up-the-roads plan for congesting traffic schemes. <laughs> Workmen, in the absence of a strike, settled for work as an alternative. It was during this brief lull in high-powered inertia that Morris Onions, a scaffolder's knee-wrencher, stumbled across something he'd found. Ding dong, Billy Bond. Here! Here, Julian! Here, over here, mate, here. Get your trousers on, hurry, Julian. Look at this! Oh, dear. Saints preserve us. Hey, what's all this about? Watch hey! this now. That's a human skull. Is it? Here comes Professor Ned Quatermit. Whoopee! Oh, it's me, Ned Quatermass, son of a scientist and doctor of darkness. Two for the price of one. modern London in plague-ridden tunnels, a tribe of once humans. Neither men nor women, they are less than animals. The raw meat of the human race, who stalks those deadly shadows. Guys, they die! 
whose cry echoes their horror, whose blood will flow when they strike again. An experience in ultimate terror, so fearful that no additional scenes can be shown in this preview. Papers and documents from God knows when. They ought to burn it all. Nobody's ever going to look at them again. Beautiful plans of buildings that were never built. <laughs> God, it's only a bloody menu. Now, the films are here. It's the driest part of the tunnel, so we keep them just here. They've gone. Gone? Yes, somebody's taken them. They must have moved all the films without telling me. When was this? Must have been last week, because I was here the week before. Where have they gone? Gone to the shelter in Tottenham Court Road, of course. They've got quite a collection down there. More secure place, better conditions for them. Can you get us in there? Us? Can you arrange it? Is there anybody there now? Maybe. If it's Tuesday or Thursday. You are listening to Music for Films on Resonance 104.4 FM in London, resonancefm.com for replay, or you may be listening to us live on the live stream. And there's an archive of our shows and our podcasts, more music for films, even more music for films, and, of course, our derives, our sojourns and wanders around London, Music for Streets. Music for Streets. All on thebeekeepers.com. So there we listened to uh, Quatermass in the Pit. There was a bit of the Goons' um, delightful homage, pastiche? Parody. Of Quatermass in the Pit. We also heard a bit of Deathline. And uh, also, which will link us to our, our next audio sequence, piece of 80s Channel 4 weirdness, um, Hidden City, a film that's got Charles Dance in, uh, it's got Richard E. Grant in. It's a film all about the um, pre-internet deposits of of hidden government files of course many of which are in the the uh deep shelters that were built in preparation for the blitz and um, world war Two. one of which is at warren street uh near the british museum oh that's that that's what's under that strange pillbox isn't it which is in in hidden city ah it's that whole thing about lost technologies i mean when I briefly worked in television, we were, I, I was partly responsible for establishing the script library or reforming the script library of Yorkshire Television, a forgotten company. And we had all of these boxes full of scripts, which were gradually taking over warehouse after warehouse. And I said, because it was 1975, I said, no, 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 what we need to do is put them all on microfiche and then they won't take up any space. And, of course, I was quite right in terms of the technology of the mid-70s. And it's this strange anachronistic thing. I did something that everyone thought, oh, heavens, that's, that's amazing, that's technology. And the machinery with which we did it, the machinery whereby 
every single page of every single script was copied onto a bit of film. Nobody would know even what those machines did anymore. And there's a way in which films generally, but particularly midnight movies or cult movies, which, I mean, if, if, that, if those terms have any meaning now, it's that they were films that you associated with staying up too late, drinking too much coffee, possibly being under the influence of other... Other... Other toxins. And it, it was a kind other of... toxins and intoxicants. And it was a kind of collective dream time. And there's a, a wonderful quote from uh, the music critic and fiction author Charles Shah Murray, estimable fellow, who um, has remarks that 1971, when Midnight Movies really began with Alejandro Jodorowsky's psychedelic Western El Topo, it was a period of introspection and opiation. El Topo is not a Western. It goes far beyond any Western. El Topo is not a religious film. It contains all religions. It is a mystic film. El Topo is more than spectacle. It is an experience for all of your life. In 1971, the revolution hadn't happened, and so people were taking to intoxicants, and perhaps and cinema was one of them. And spending all night in cinemas. I mean, I remember it would have been in late 1971 or early 1972, where I, I and some friends went to the Electric Cinema in Notting, in Notting Hill. Hill and saw an all-nighter that consisted of the Boonwells, the Exterminating Angel... Jodorowsky's uh, Blanche. No, well, uh, was it uh, Goto, Isle of Love? Goto, L'Ile d'Amour? That's an extraordinarily unpleasant film. Uh, was it Blanche or was it Goto? I can't remember. I think it must have been Goto. Um, Franju's Judex. And an old favourite of mine, Valerie and Her Week, Week of, of Wonders. Wonders. Now you don't get to see programmes like that very often anymore. <laughs> and because half the audience were under the influence of various things, and because they're all very dreamlike films, I don't think I ever dropped off. And certainly those films that I, from that programme, that are part of the mechanism of, mechanism of the subconscious that produces dreams, feel like I dreamt them, even though when I watched Franju's Judex years later, everything I remembered, the, 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 the person blowing the trumpet over the, de the, the, the dead villainess, the, 
the strange party ball where everyone's wearing bird's head. They were all there. I mean, I hadn't made them up, but I was for a long time not entirely certain that I'd actually seen those things in a film. It's like the time I saw for the second time Alien at a science fiction convention when I was very tired. And I still don't know for certain that my memory of having seen the sequence where Ripley finds some of her crew members trussed up in cocoons with chest bursters inside them. I'd read the novelisation which has that scene in. When I saw the director's cut which has that scene in, it seemed exactly like I remembered it from this memory that possibly hadn't been a real memory in the first place. There's this strange connection between late-night movies and dreaming. And that's part of what you mean by the collective dream time. And it's partly a function of the times in which we've seen these vast programmes. I don't think I've ever seen Celine and Julie go, go boating all the way through... What I've done is watch it several times and I've certainly seen all of it, but a lot of it I may not remember having seen, or as opposed to dreaming it, on the same occasion. There are other films like that, Julietta and the, and the Spirit. And the trouble is, with films that are the surrealist films beloved of late-night programmers, how would you know? How would you know what is the real authentic film and what is the film that lives in your memory? It's, it's like the way you travel, travel home late at night on, on tubes and buses and you miss bits of the journey because you drowse. And maybe, maybe you were there and maybe you weren't there. That's part of the experience, is spacing in and out of dream and recollection. So is there a sense in which those films that we heard clips of a moment ago, Quatermass in the Pit, Deathline, Hidden City, you're right, they're all about dead machines. Yeah. The dead Martian spaceship, old paper files and microfiches hidden away in secret government. The, 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 the lost tribe that actually got walled up and became cannibals. Is there a sense in which these underground films we're talking about are kind of where all, all the flotsam, all the crap on the platform gets blown into the tracks and then blown down a tunnel and who knows where it goes? And at any moment it might suddenly flash into fire because that's why they have fluffers. Now we should talk about uh, two very uh, important concepts that are related to that. The underground as a source of quite real danger and mm. risk to people and of course what the fluffers what the people working in in uh, under night streets are doing is making the tube safe in 1958 as they are to this day and have been for every single night in all the intervening years because the underground is genuinely a place of authentic danger eight adults and one child have been killed 
widespread gratitude goes out to the rescue teams who came so readily to help at this moment of tragedy. If anything goes wrong, there you are beneath the city streets, in the labyrinth. We all know what lives in the labyrinth. I mean, this is a moment to actually be serious about the people who down the years have have died in the underground. Um, you know, the the people sheltering from the Blitz who died in a panic and tra mass trampling at Bethnal Green uh, in in the Blitz. The, you know, the, the Moorgate crash, the King's Cross fire, the terrorist attacks of 7-7, and, of course, the unsuccessful uh, underground, underground bombings that followed 7-7. These are not trivial things and, and bear remembering. And the fact that these are not, you know, are comparatively isolated incidents is because of the humdrum, boring, daily maintenance that's part of what makes a big system like London Underground work. Just look at all this dirt. Hundred tons of it every year. It's all you lot. Nine hundred thousand of you coming in every day and not one of you taking the trouble to wipe your feet on the mat. And here we are, slaving all night to keep the place tidy. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, they're very fussy about ventilation. And the temperature's got to be kept constant too, around 70 all the time. So that's where the summer goes, underground. We don't appreciate it, except when things go right. And it's just worth remembering that the London Underground is a great artefact of human society. All underground systems are, and they depend on the hard, underappreciated under work of an awful lot of people. I discovered when I was researching links between films and underground stops to make the Scala map, uh, many extraordinary stories that we'll go on to talk about in uh, the months to come. But for me, certainly the most poignant one was about what happened with the deep shelters. That even after the war, they were a temporary home to immigrants uh, in the early part of the Windrush. The deep shelter in Clapham South was where people were escorted when they arrived at uh, British ports from Caribbean and the West Indies. Um, and there was a kind of temporary underground village of, uh, you know, the new black Londoners who, who'd moved to Clapham. And partly to reflect that, a very interesting, still quite obscure film, uh, Death May Be Your Santa Claus, which I put at Clapham South, which has extraordinary sequences. I mean, you can find all of it on YouTube because it's not a film that ever actually found a commercial distributor. So now it's, it's, it's there with the time code on and it's free. Incredible imagery. Do not think I have come to destroy the old law. I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill for my people's sake. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill for my people's sake.
These men, whose blood may overflow the banks of the Tiber, are nothing but ambassadors returning home after lying for their country. They return to realize these lies and find a revival in Marx. It is true that they are virile and potent, hence the welcome extended to them by your women. Yes, your women. The resentment is quite obviously seen in the white man and the black woman. A film by uh, Frankie Diamond, who is uh, not, not well known at all, um, which I think is very unfortunate. A real eccentric in uh, the, the uh, tradition of jo Sir John Betjeman and Vivian Stanshaw and uh, Tilda Swinton and other people that you can find on our Scala map. But um, because he's a black guy from London, perhaps... He's Less well-known than he ought to, and, ought and, to and be. And his distinctive voice, not only that, that movie, but also several of his uh, extremely odd... Um, I mean that in the most affectionate and... Yeah, praising as praise. Heart, as much praise as I can heap on it. They're, they're extraordinary things. A beautiful house stood in the midst of trees And when you got there A beautiful woman to greet you Her smiling face Her hanging hair Her sun-browned body All together said hello One of the things I hope from the Scala Map is people give this film a look and listen to some of his work Without the deep shelters Without this sense of the underground being um, the, the subconscious or, you know, the, the, the id of London, but in a sense it's also the ego, it's the kind of the parental, protective, yes. in, a, in a way, nurturing or certainly incubating. Uh, God, I almost used the phrase, phrase safe space. Well, it's, it's, it's also the nervous system of London. It's the thing... <laughs> Well, it's the it's the thing that dreams underneath London, and that has, which is one of the reasons why um, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere works so well. Because uh, for those people that don't know the television show that became a book, that became a comic, that became a radio show, and doubtless in the fullness of time will eventually get turned into a film as well. Because why not? Um, the, the central conceit is not only that there is a world of magic and wonder underneath London, but that bits of the tube map are reflections of what is real, that there is a baron who has a court, that there is an angel who lurks underneath Islington. <laughs> and that's that feels existentially right, that these strange names which are partly the names of old pubs, partly the names of just random place names, um, have metaphoric resonance. Um, even Stephen King noticed this during, a, during his, one of his brief sojourns in London, that the name Crouch End is infinitely sinister, <laughs> because what is crouching and why does it end? One of the reasons why London is like a dream, is like the unconscious, is potentially a place of threat, is that it's vast and complex enough that chance can happen, that there will be chance meetings, that those meetings might go one way or might go another, 
that uh, in sliding doors that under-remembered romantic comedy from the period of romantic comedies that happened in the late 20th century uh, and, and the early uh, early 21st century that e Gwyneth Paltrow either does or does not get on a train because of the doors closing and in the world in which she get, gets on the succeeds in getting on the train, her life goes one way, and the, the tr version where she did not get on the train, her life goes in an entirely other direction. And that has again what I what I call a, an existential meta metaphorical truth about it that we always feel, partly because of the danger, the potential danger of travelling around with half the rock and clay and w w that London stands on above your head, partly because every day the rush hour takes 50% of the population of London and throws it into a melting pot. Anything might happen once you go, you, you go on to, in, onto the underground. In a sense, it's the city equivalent of the dark wood uh, that... You know, where things happen. It's a contingent space, much more so than the streets, because you don't know who you're sitting next to. And sometimes people get to exploit that. That's that wonderful scene in Gumshoe, where the man down from Liverpool is being harassed by a heavy and simply accuses him of making a pass. And there's that wonderful bit where Albert Finney is the eponymous gumshoe is being tailed by Duncan McRae as a supposed heavy who th constantly threatens him in this soft-spoken, whispered Morningside voice. And, and two things. One, of course, that uh, Albert Finney's character, Eddie, he is for Eddie. It's also for enough, which is what I've had he makes gets out of the situation by accusing the Scotsman of making a pass. It later emerges that the Scotsman is a total fraud, that he's not actually a heavy at all. He's the guy who got the call when, when his friend, the heavy, was ill. Um, again, it's that sense of complete contingency, which, though Gumshoe is a great film about Liverpool... It also has this London sequence that's a fabulous London sequence. Can I ask you something, John? Anything, Eddie. Will you take your bloody hand off me, knee? Get up! Get away from me! It's disgusting! You come back to London for a day out, so he sits next to you on the tube, the next thing you know, he's got his hand on your thigh. It's not going to stop here, I'm going to write to my MP. Well, London gets to be a guest star in a Liverpool movie. So this, this London where, where everything is to do with everything else... Um, there's another book by one of our mates that we should invoke while we're on this. 253 subject. by Mr. Jeff Ryman, which was originally, of course, meant to be as much a, hy a hypertext online as it was a book, which is about. Uh, it's a very literary construct. It's 253 sections, each of 253 words with hypertext connecting them. And there are, of course, Allegedly, 253 people on every London Underground train. And this is the story of each of those 253 people. It's like the, the old Naked City thing. 
There are nine million stories in Naked City. This has been one of them. In terms of the underground connecting everything in London and everything in London being connected to the underground, this sort of interdependency, interconnectedness, the way in which Harry Beck's design created a kind of liberating structure, a way in which... The diagram. And all these things we've been talking about, London dreaming, things in the gap, you know, the, the, the horrifying, the genuinely terrifying things about London, also the way that London is all-embracing. Except for the bits that the tube didn't used to go to. Because, obviously, at the point where Harry Beck drew the map, it didn't go to Perivale or West Ryslip. It didn't go to Epping and Ongar. Epping and Ongar, they sound like minor characters in, in a Shakespearean play. Ah, Lord Epping and Ongar! <laughs> Um, but also there were parts, underprivileged parts of London, which weren't connected. And, of course, this lasted a long time because under the reign of Margaret Thatcher, his boo, various places that had been connected were less connected, that the Broad Street line stopped going to Broad Street, that uh, parts of Hackney were cut off for decades from public for rail public transport, either British Rail or or, 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 the, or the underground. That now, of course, thanks to the period of the London mayoralty in the early noughts, large parts of London are now connected in a way they never were, thanks to the, the takeover of the overground. And that's one of the things that Harry Beck's desire to do a map showing all of the, the the British rail connections as they then were across London as well as the London Underground was very prophetic of the London map, London under, transport map as it now exists. And he wanted to do that when? In the late 30s? And in a sense, Harry Beck dreamed modern London. Well, in a moment, we're going to talk to our guest, Alex Niven, uh, who's written about this idea of authenticity that we were talking about, uh, you know, an, an authentic version of working class London, an authentic London. He's written about that in the context of uh, New Folk in his book, Folk Opposition. But before we talk to Alex, uh, I just done a little another compilation of, of clips and music from some of the films on our Scala map. And... This is my working theory. Indulge me, Roz, if you will. My of course, I always do. My theory is the connection between Harry Beck, the designer of the London Underground map, who designed a, a, a simpler map to, to explain the London Underground as he could, basing it on an electrical diagram, is electricity. And the technology... And on the simple shapes of vertical lines... Horizontal lines and diagonal lines that reduced everything to a comprehensible system with little ticks for stations and little circles for interchanges. So obvious and so elegant and so simple for something as complicated as the London Underground map, even in his day. And it went on being the, standard, being the design standard for underground maps for such a long time after his death. And, and he he's, he produced other wonderful maps. My favourite one, which he still hasn't been 
adopted by the Paris uh, Metro is he did exactly the same thing yes. to I- explain the complexity of Paris and it's a, a beautiful piece of design as, as you'd expect from Harry Beck. And classic profit without honour. Well, so to connect all those ideas, I've put together some clips from films where we have electricity in the forms of transport, electricity in the form of light, light that freed up the night, meant people could go out and go to the pub or have fun, particularly light in terms of cinema projection. But then also um, the electric guitar, the way the rock, rock and roll became a way for people from the suburbs to boost their signal. Uh, the old place has been everything in its day. It was a theatre way back before they built the railway. Then it was a musical. I wonder how my great uncle got mixed up in all this. Well, it was before the First War, apparently. The young Simon must have had quite a way with him. He even managed to get some of the local people to put their money into it. <laughs> my dad did, as a matter of fact. Spencer's Electric Theatre was called in those days. The first in this part of the country. There's good luck and fortune for everyone If you search hard enough, who can tell? Just around the corner you can find a heap of gold Or maybe you're wishing well a second-hand magic spell Or best of all, lots of real love When you're down the lane and you're caught up by the rain Now don't you try to run away Watch all your troubles fade like little bubbles Yes, you've got to live it up today Yes, you've got to live it up today So to discuss some more of the issues that we were talking about in the first segment about Harry Beck's map and this sort of idea of a liberating structure, the idea that you can have a design of a map of London and by working out the sort of relationship between all the places on that map and the the spatial geography, you can also have this sense of, I suppose, personal freedom and that the sort of the, the link between electricity as something which freed up the night because of electric light, cinema as something that gave people something to do and and freed the imagination gave people more things to dream about and then also the the electric guitar uh, as the thing that gave kids from the suburbs a way of boosting their signal and that's why we've got terrific films on the scala map like uh, it's trad dad yeah and live it up before you heard a little kind of musical medley where we put together eddie cochran's spaceship to mars with uh heinz singing the the theme music for live it up but so I'm very, very excited that to talk about this, we've got Alex Niven, who, as well as being a, a noted poet and a writer about um, the sort of state of culture and egalitarianism, of course, also, Alex, you you have a background as a musician as well. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And I'm partly excited that we can talk to you about this because uh, Alex's very fine book, Folk Opposition, anyone who knows me 
for a year or two, I was wandering around with it in my pocket, basically waving it at people and demanding that they re- that they read it. And um, there's already been a bit in another resonance show when we went to uh, Shruti and I went to House Cars in Delhi to look at Hipster Delhi. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a bit of it out there, and so I'm going to read a bit of it again to lead into this sequence. So this is from Alex's book, Folk Opposition. The congregation of a new, unashamedly wealthy demographic behind green Toryism and its musical cousin, New Folk, was perhaps inevitable. Without restraining influences, British elites will probably always return to pastoral myth as a means of hiding inequality under a carapace of fairy tale near feudal commonality. An unfortunate development, though, was the incorporation of the surface features of radical post-war counterculture folk into the mythos. As in countless other instances over the last few decades, the possibility of a real alternative culture, of a real popular opposition to neoliberal hegemony, has been stifled by a casual, consumerist appropriation of a subversive art of the previous epochs. As Thatcher and her political successors have progressively remodelled Britain so that it is a country in which ancient interests share power with the properties of liberal aspirationalism, we have seen a return to the pre-20th century arrangement whereby the country is ruled by an elite which divides its time between a practice of wealth generation in city and an identity founded in the countryside where it spends its leisure time. At the start of the 2010s, the cultural mainstream is overwhelmingly dominated by a newly confident upper middle class, one that has a formidable monopoly on the contemporary sense of what alternative culture means. In music, as across an entire culture, the heirs of William the Conqueror are wearing the folk's clothing. So, I mean, Alex, I think the first thing we were interested to talk to you about, and mainly on this show, Music for Film, we're sort of interested in midnight movies and cult cinema. And there's kind of a, a question about what is cult cinema? You know, kind of what are the the countercultural weird films now? Do you think that that cinema as an art form has been appropriated in the same way that arguably, and as you do argue, folk music has? Um, I, I, film isn't my area. <laughs> it, uh really so i wouldn't really be the the person to i've I've sort of tried to sort of keep to sort of music and literature and Mm -hmm. i'm a kind of happy uh amateur and uh uh when it comes to film so i'd i wouldn't really be the the person well you 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 do talk very effectively about the weaponizing of well you use the example of brideshead but we could also talk about Downton abbey um it's this dishonest nostalgia for the past. I mean, we've recently, I've recently talked on our Scala-Rama show, uh, Scala Review, about the reissue of Barry Lyndon, which strikes me strikes me as a, an honest piece of heritage cinema. I, I, mm. I, I, when I'm talking about this sort of thing, I always say heritage because... Okay. <laughs> um, because it actually talks about the, the cost... It talks about the sociopathy of the ruling classes, the way that the price of entry is betrayal. You know, that sooner or later, and that sooner or later they will catch you out and they will expel you and they will get you. I mean, the way that happens to to Barry Lyndon. Because if you look at Brideshead, if you look at Downton Abbey, it's all very dishonest. You know, these people had servants picking up their underpants. And that's what one can't help feeling uh, a lot of the oligarchs want, is people to pick up their underpants and squeeze out their toothpaste. There's also the thing about films and film music where if a film like Barry Lyndon gets reissued, the music in it, and of course some of the most famous music in Barry Lyndon is folk music, it's the Chieftains. 
when that film came out in the early 70s, that had an obvious association with the IRA, as did indeed the Chieftains. Now, Alex, I mean, if, if people hear traditional Irish or Scots folk music, has it got the same kind of connotations of nationalism or is it more sort of appropriated into this kind of secret garden party, meltdown, pop-up music festival kind of world that you're writing about in folk opposition? Um, I mean, well, there's, there's obviously this sort of English folk music has a very has had a very different trajectory from sort of Irish and Scottish um, folk music. Um, I, you know, I, Irish and Scottish folk music seem to have a kind of moment in the '90s, you know, off the back of you know Riverdance and Braveheart and um, you know and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, English English folk music, which for a long time was um, kind of occluded uh I, I, you know as i as i sort of write about in folk opposition it seemed to come into its own really in the late noughties or late late two, late 2000s um and early 2010s uh, with a specific nationalist um aspect um in a way that to me seemed to coincide with um you know as in the passage you you read out uh, which seemed to coincide with the rise of cameron um you know the right the, the return of a kind of uh toryism uh to the kind of cent- central ground of of british culture um and i think so i think i would sort of distinguish between the celtic fringe as it were and a kind of resurgent englishness um which obviously has you know correlates and and, and connections um in 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 the ground of contemporary politics and and you know brexit and so forth and you know calls in contemporary mainstream politics for an English parliament, for example. Um, obviously, Cameron is sadly no longer with us, um, but I think that kind of, um, you know, those those calls for a kind of uh, an English, uh, sort of empowered Englishness are still with us. But there's, there's another empowered Englishness, surely. There's that communal, uh, mm. that communal culture of, oh, allotments and jam making. Yeah. True. True. Make no reference to a political leader of another party. Um, (laughs) But the the fact that you have this culture of people who know each other because they have adjacent bits of land they rent from the council on which they Mm. grow their own food. That is a real thing. And it's Mm. very English. I mean, I know people do it elsewhere, but it's nonetheless has a particular... English manifestation, these ramshackle, na- bodged together huts that people put up, and the fact that people, family, families can live off what they grow on their allotted piece of ground and make jam from, 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 from blackberries picked, picked on common ground. There's another communal activity which you write about um, very uh, thoughtfully and very passionately, I, I feel, Alex, which is, of course, football. And uh, football's represented on our Scala map by Arsenal. There's an institution in London to do with football mm. that is so important, it's got its own tube stop. And there was even a film. There's a sort of lovely Mr Chumley Warner murder mystery, which has got the Arsenal team in, uh, called the mm. um, Arsenal Stadium Mystery. Good Lord. Leslie, this is um, Inspector Slade. How do you do? How do you do? You'd be the nearest man to Dice when he fell, wouldn't you? Yes, I was, Tom. Can you tell us what happened? When he had the ball, I rushed forward to tackle him. Just as I got there, stumbled and fell to the ground. What did he look like? 
You were sweating badly and looked very grey. Grey? Yes, you looked terrible. Terrible. Very hot in here, isn't it? Thank you so much. And also, um, on talking, since we're talking about the Arsenal and football, a subject, Ross, which I know you feel very strongly about. <laughs> it's a sort of polite but nonplussed look on my colleague's face at the moment. <laughs> I, um, I think you could, you could also refer to that as mild distaste. There's a very interesting extra, which I commend uh, to both of you, but also to our audience, on the DVD of Julian Temple's concert film of the Sex Pistols reunion, oh, right. always, which is called, of course, There'll Always Be in England, which is filmed at the Brixton Academy, that fine South London right. institution near to where wow. we're recording today. There's a bit where uh, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, they're doing kind of the Pistols London, and there's actually a kind of psychogeographic bit on the DVD, sorry, on the Blu-ray, where you can actually go around London and look at locations that the Pistols have got stories about. There's even a bit where John Lydon goes around on an open-top bus and kind of does his, like, his tour guide <laughs> but, uh, routine. On the horizon. Bloody hell! Have you ever taken an amplifier apart, you know, and you look at the insides? Well, there you go, there's a concept. Like I say, does anyone know who that gentleman is? Hello? Can you help me out? Who is that gentleman there? Does he represent anyone traditional? Oh, don't speak to me, sorry. Officer! Even the police don't pay attention. <laughs> what a mellowed out town. George Bernard Shaw, and he was Irish. It's the Duke of Wellington, and he's not wearing a pair. Look, he's got that. But he lived, I didn't know this till I watched this, and I will play this when we broadcast this, I'll put this sequence in. Um, but it's definitely worth getting the Blu ray just to watch this, I think. John Lydon lived. Uh, grew up in a one-bedroom flat opposite the Arsenal ground with an outside right. loo. And what he does in the in the Blu-ray, and as our listeners will now hear, because I'll put the sequence in, he wanders across from where he grew up, in relative speaking poverty, in an Irish family. And of course, John Lydon, he had... Um, uh, I've forgotten what condition he suffered from. Did he have very bad pneumonia or something, or pleurisy? But anyway, he was in a coma for the better part of a year, and he lost all his memory... And I think when he was like eight or nine, he basically had to completely remember, re- recover his whole identity because it had affected his mind so severely. And all his kind of old man steptoe routine is very strongly based on the fact that, you know, he wasn't kind of doing a sort of mocking routine about a Victorian cripple. He was that Victorian cripple. But he walks across to the, the new Arsenal Stadium and talks to uh, some sort of proverbial black hoodie guys about what he he's raging against, which is the gentrification of the area and the gentrification of the Arsenal Stadium. And then quite amusingly, these, these two black gentlemen just go, oh, we like it, it's better now. <laughs> now, I grew up on Benwell Road, right, in my early youth, which is the road this light is off of. We had two rooms, six of us lived there until I was 11, and then we moved to Six Acres Estate, which is the other side over there, Finsbury Park. Uh, at that time, when we were that young... We had no indoor toilet. It was an outdoor loo, open to the public. Now, I never thought that that was a bad thing. Nobody around here did, because everybody lived the same way, and it was all right. It's... This, you know, from that, is a juxtaposition of events, and I don't see the in-between. I don't see the logical progression. I think this is disassociated with what actual real working-class people had to grow up with around here. How am I supposed to relate to this? I grew up 
being an Arsenal supporter since I was four years old. I don't, I don't gather this one at all. You are my Arsenal, my only Arsenal. You make me happy when skies are blue. You know I love you. Your locals, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is this now? To, what have they done to Arsenal? Made it good, better, bigger. Made it good and big and better. Yeah, yeah. No, don't be deaf. Yeah, don't be hybrid. selling us old folk down the river. <laughs> oh, Mr. Hybrid. Lydon, peace and love. I grew up on this road. Is it? I'm just down there, from down there. Yeah. I've seen you before on TV. <laughs> oh, doing something salty, I hope. <laughs> but the thing is, there's always complexities. I mean, one of the things that struck me, again, with Barry Lyndon, was the Schubert. Mm. Because the whole point is, Schubert was not writing that piano trio for an aristocratic audience. He was writing it for a, a, a bourgeois audience of, of fellow music makers. Um, we know a lot about Schubert's life. Why do we know a lot about Schubert's life? Because he was being watched perpetually by the secret police. Mm. Um, he wasn't particularly politically radical, but all of his friends were. And speaking of people who aren't particularly politically radical, another uh, prediction that's in your very fine book, Folk Opposition, Alex, is uh, of the inexorable rise of a certain Mr Andy Burnham, who many of us were shocked to discover well, the other day yeah. was still Shadow Home Secretary and he just kind of kept very, very low during the purge. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have very mixed feelings about Andy Burnham. I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, uh, co coming coming out of the sort of discussion about football, he's someone who, you know, you, you can read him two ways. You know, there's a, there's a sense of very much he's selling himself as a kind of ordinary bloke, you know, Mr. Normal in, in Owen Smith terms, um, you know, who, who likes football and so on and so forth. At the same time, he, you know, he does deserve great credit for the Hillsborough campaign, which I think for Very me is, so. is, yes. is not just a, a meaningful, um, uh, you know, political campaign in, in its effects, but but also does does show um, does have a kind of symbolic resonance in that it, it it indicates a way of perhaps a kind of Corbynite resurgent Labour Party. Um, you know, answering this million-dollar question about you know how to engage with the former Labour heartlands, you know, the working-class North, working-class London, um, and so on and so forth. You know, it seems to me that there, there is perhaps some potential on the ground of um, you know uh, in, uh, things like you know the, the the kind of injustices that are perpetrated uh, that were perpetrated at Hillsborough and, and continue to be perpetrated. Um, not in much less tragic terms, but, um, you know, modern football in Britain is, you know, the site of kind of rampant exploitation, as as, as we all know. Uh, you know, it seems to me that one very easy thing Jeremy Corbyn could do is um, campaign on the grounds of, um, you know, positioning himself in opposition to someone like Mike Ashley, mm. kind of... Sports direct, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and um, so it's on the, you know, I, I think... Andy Burnham is, you know, I don't think he'll ever be able to, you know, rid himself of the, the stench of of New Labour, because um, that was his his kind of generation and that was his his upbringing, political upbringing, as it were. Um, nevertheless, I, I think there's, you know, he's he's not um, 
you know he's not Ed Balls. <laughs> he's uh, there's a bit more to him, and and, and I, you know I'm interested to see what happens in Manchester. Um, hmm. I'd still like to see um, Andy Burnham on Strictly. <laughs> yeah, I mean part of what went wrong with football is one of the things that's gone wrong generally is foreign oligarchs buying things up. And another thing that's gone wrong with football is something that's gone wrong with the the country. Corruption. Mm. It certainly is the case that sports journalists I talk to, uh, it's stuff they can't prove, but I think it's uh, it's an open secret, the extent to which uh, assets, in particular football clubs and football stadia, have been built up as money laundering exercises, in particular for laundering dirty cash and turning it into, into property development. Perhaps here's a connection: is is we're talking about the fact that there are there is money and influence in politics, in public life, still in Britain and in England as well, which is kind of over, intersects with English nationalism. But then we've also got an idea that popular activities like music festivals, like folk music, like football, are basically good. Is if you get people together in crowds, you know, the conclusion people have reached from Hillsborough is it wasn't the fans, it was the cops. And that the, the way in which the Sun and, and other wings of the media tried to mal- malign the fans has now been exposed, including through the campaigning of Andy Burnham as having been deliberately maligned and contrived. And actually football fans, despite all that period of soccer violence, tend to look out for each other and, generally speaking, are quite supportive of each other. Alex, how do you think that overlaps with the kind of another aspect of big money and a sense of English communal identity which is what's left of Britpop what's left of Cool Britannia uh, you know what's has anyone asked Noel Gallagher what he thinks about Brexit um, I, I don't know I mean I, there's certainly no um, I, I don't think there's any any uh, or very much good to be said about Noel Gallagher other than, other than that he's you know uh, he can be quite funny in his sort of public persona I mean I, I guess if we're looking for a kind of, um, you know, kernel of something good at the heart of Britpop, which obviously in in its effects was, was you know, crass and awful and, you know, we're still trying to sort of escape from its sort of hoary legacy. Um, and, it, you know, it's I think it's, you know, people have made the, the comparison with New Labour a million times, but I think it's completely completely fair and completely right that they do that um but if we're looking to you know to kind of delve beneath the the kind of rubbish heap of Britpop uh, and identify something good about it something that was potentially good at least i think in the early days of, of Britpop, uh, I, I suppose 19, 1994 is an interesting year for me um you know um you have kind of you know albums by suede um you know you have kind of train spotting coming out um Trainspot eggs on our map, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you know that that kind of at the start, Britney, and also you know Oasis's first album. You, you had a kind of, um, you know, uh, almost a kind of evening before this, before it all went wrong, where Britpop was, you know, if you even you know a film like Trainspotting, obviously the the reissue, the the sequels coming out next year, um, that was very much giving expression in a kind of um, populist way perhaps too populist for some perhaps too mainstream but nevertheless it was you know giving expression to a lot of the kind of anger that had been gathering in 
um, in working class culture in particular, or, you know, in the sort of overlap between the working class culture and the counterculture. Um, and I, and I think, you know, um, there's that, again, that kind of million dollar question of, you know, how does that ter territory cross over into the mainstream where it's able to have, you know, positive political effects? Um, you know, something like train spotting, something like very early Oasis, early Suede, you know, uh, records that are selling, you know, millions, gigs that are sort of packed with, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, I think as a, as a sort of leftist, as a sort of counterculturalist, you have to see something of potential in that, even if in reality it, it went badly wrong. Um, you know, clearly what you are looking for, um, you know, as, as any kind of radical is, you know, a mass, is a mass movement, is, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, a positive populism, hmm. um, even if Britpop was, you know, a kind of archetypal example of a sort of negative, sort of crass populism. I think there was some, you know, in its early, early days, I think there was some potential there. I mean, I was there, and I'm sure you were as well, Alex. And what by mentioning Swade, who are of course from Crawley. Well, um, in fact, there we go. Brett went to Crawley sits from College, where my stepdad used to teach. The bands that were around then, in the sort of post-rave but pre-Britpop phase that you're talking about, um, mm -hmm. the thing that I always found very, very intriguing was the overlap between a kind of populist psychedelia, which of course was a very dominant, important aspect of of Baggy and the Manchester sound. Uh, but the way in which it was open to influences, actually quite in some ways for, for English popular music, British popular music, quite traditional, soul, northern soul, mm -hmm. funk, R&B. Mm. Um, and so, well, that kind of makes me think about two things. One is there was, I thought, a very mean-spirited piece about um, how wrong-headed green politics in Brighton is by John Harris in The Guardian, where he started off by going, Brighton's the kind of place when you walk down, he means Trafalgar Street from the station to walk down to the level. When you walk down the street, you see shops selling Funkadelic albums. What's John Harris's problem with George Clinton? Or what's George Clinton done to The Guardian? So there's that. But the other thing, of course, it makes me think of, and this is where I can bring Rosin, who will wax rhapsodic about this with me, is Lush. Mickey from Lush. How good are Lush? Very good. And Pulp. Pulp. I mean, so, and that's, of course, Jarvis Cock is a very, very interesting person in all this because he's got a French wife, partly lives in Paris, very, very open to the kinds of European influences, which, you know, now people will be casually castigating at bus stops post-Brexit, mm. like Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, but also that dry sarcasm that's so very, very British and so very, very English is, you know, one of the prime British modes of subversion is just casting a side eye and say, "Going, oh right." Yeah, because I mean, Alex, isn't the the pre-Britpop period you're talking about? That's kind of the point at which people, as with Jarvis Cocker, did a couple of John Peel sessions, thought that they were going to get a record deal and make it big. And of course, in Jarvis's case, a lot of the fact that he's got this kind of wonderful sort of 
hound dog long suffering quality this wonderful alan bennett self deprecating lilt to to what he says and what he does it's because he spent eight years in the wilderness signing on before they before pulp became a thing absolutely i mean you know i think i think what we're talking about is is um you know there are there are moments sort of scattered throughout the last well you know forever but you know particularly the last 50 years um of western popular culture of um you know the the margins wandering into the mainstream you know it's sort of embodied in the pulp song uh misshapes you know what was it we're coming in off the sidelines or, or i'm sort of misquoting but a lyric like that which you know jarvis cocker in interviews is you know is is, is all about that moment of of the counterculture sort of having having a moment in the sun and and kind of um yeah. you know feeling as if things are going to change um you know i think the interesting thing for us now is to look at you know why that didn't you know why why was why was that so ineffectual why did it very very quickly um you know evaporate there's this whole middle class bureaucratic culture of moving people on telling people what to do being worried that people are getting things to which they're not entitled um and being worried about noise and if you want to have a culture culture, you actually have to occasionally be a nuisance. <laughs> occasionally get things to which you maybe weren't quite entitled. It's mm. culture culture is dependent on there being slack in society. And mm. one of the things on which New Labour and post twenty ten Toryism were united is that no one must be allowed to have any slack. And you mm. you certainly feel that in the um, you know, because we're, we're partly the jumping off point for this conversation is is Harry Beck's um, tube map, and you look around London and you look at venues that were important in the counterculture or which have been important to a live music culture or to um, uh, you know a, a, a rave or club culture over the last twenty years. All of them have either gone or are under threat. The Troubadour in um, West London that's gone, which was the kind of main live folk venue in London still mm. where Bob Dylan and, and uh, uh, Paul Simon had played that's gone because the neighbours complained about the noise and you kind of wonder if you're moving next to a pub which has been famous for live folk music for the better part of 40 years maybe don't be surprised about the fact there's going to be noise uh, another thing we've talked about on another show on the Scala Review we talked to Steve Woolley about was the Scala itself the Scala at King's Cross of course before it was uh, this legendary film club in the 80s it had at various times been a primatarium the guy owned it who was fascinated wow. with monkeys but prior to being a primatarium kind of the the, the first uh, the first iteration of it being a kind of mini festival of light was it was famously where Jimi Hendrix had a a residency. All these places are now under threat precisely because of these kind of gentrifying forces, these, these sort of health and safety concerns which, which suffocate and sterilise all the slack space. Well, I mean, one of the problems, of course, is that instead of making anything, this country, like another n- number of other countries, decided to, one, deal in finance so abstracted from anything that can legitimately be called money. I mean, gambling on the results of gambling on the results of futures of commodities that maybe no one wants. It also 
builds itself on inflated property prices. And inflated property prices are a pyramid scheme. They're a Ponzi scheme. And one of the things that that means is that everything gets turned into housing. And so culture disappears because culture is turned into housing. And nothing creative can really happen when you live inside a gold brick. Yeah. It's... It's, I, I find it terrifying. Alex, one of the things, um, just sort of in conclusion, I um, wonder what you think about this. One of the things which really strikes me about the film that we're talking about, which is this London transport film, Under Night Streets, which is very much about the workers on the underground at night making it safe, maintaining it, is that view of a world from the 1950s where, the, you know, there aren't any personalities, there aren't any stars, the star of that, film is the underground itself and also kind of the um i have to say very engaging and warm but also very uh reassuring sort of every man voice of leslie dwyer doing the voiceover of that the um, great leslie dwyer and it, it it's hearkening back to an era where trade unions were a great cultural force just by dint of the numbers of people that they could mobilize and of course one of the things that happened under the blair period was is trade union membership uh, diminished significantly the present Labour leadership under Jeremy Corbyn are trying to draw, to a certain extent, on on that kind of nostalgia. Alex, in conclusion, I mean, do you think that when you're writing about a folk process of of storytelling about history in the past as much of about music, uh, you write, I think, very very perceptively and quite convincingly about the fact that there is a, a possibility of uh, genuinely egalitarian and communal culture being resurgent in England do you think that what Corbyn's talking about is just nostalgic or do you think there is some real possibility that from opposition to, to, to Sports Direct um, from people worrying about forces like gentrification actually he can form, uh, now I sound like I'm supporting the Labour Party which I just left to be clear listeners, Ross is still in the <laughs> Labour Party but suspended, I've left it but but he, what he's trying to do is a kind of very bold and admirable project but I think some people who are quite critical of him which I have to include myself I wonder is it just nostalgia? Um, I, th- I think I would insist on a distinction between um, nostalgia and a much more positive concept of something like um, historical memory um, or, you know, in, in, in the kind of Marxist mm-hmm. uh, tradition, it's called historical sense, where, you know, uh, you know, there's a kind of attention to history, uh, which is a means of getting, you know, getting into the future. You can't um, you can't live in a kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, timeless sort of stasis, you, you know, in, in order to progress into the future. You know, I think, you know, one one sort of limitation to sort of overly futurist or futurist oriented uh, forms of politics and culture is they, you know, they tend to kind of um, posit that, you know, you can sort of uh, you, you progress by some uh, some kind of ecstatic, um, you know, almost kind of euphoric leap forward, um, which which is true in 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 some cases, but I think much more often you know how how we progress how we progress politically and culture, culturally is by um attending to the past working out what what went wrong about the past um and by working out what what went right about the past i think um in you know in in defense of corbyn i think he's often accused of you know kind of going back to the 70s going back to the 80s um on the whole i i, I think 
you know certainly what's emerging now is you know it might kind of it might have that kind of historical memory which people have of you know nationalized industry and so on and so forth but it seems to me very different and it doesn't seem to me to be a danger that you know the, the kind of um certainly the sort of younger generation of, of momentum hmm. people um are uh, you know, are going to just sort of blindly follow that. It's significant um, that his policies do include the most radical proposals for digital democracy that have mm. come from any other party. Yeah, there seems to me to be a synthesis of of new, new and old. Which you know, which that that's how how we get progress. You know, it's not by you know uh, you know this kind of ecstatic futurists. Uh, newness, which, as we know, is, is you know as often and perhaps more often, uh, you know, a rightist. Um, yeah, well, you know, a lot yeah, of it, right a, lo- a lot thing. of it, sums up as the, the boot stamping on the human face forever. Indeed, yeah, yeah, it has that violence. It has violence that sense too. of oh, we know what it is, and it's us on top of you forever. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I, yeah, so you know, I think, um, you know. Um, uh, Cor- Corbyn seems to me to be treading a, a nice line between the kind of futurist, perhaps accelerationist currents, you know, at the moment in the left, and um, you know, perhaps a more populist, communal, um, you know, h- historically minded leftism. Um, I'd perhaps characterise it in those terms, without resorting to accusations mm. of nostalgia. After all, William Morris wrote both about the medieval past and and the utopian mm. future. Is that yeah, great Morris British is, leftist? Yeah, exactly. Morris is a, a great example, I think. Yeah. And while we're talking about William Morris, and um, before we end, I mean, I think we should also give Alex credit not only for being a very uh, uh, insightful commentator, commentator on poli- yeah, the the interface between politics and culture, but also I'm very t- uh, taken with your your recent poetry collection. Yes. Oh, well, thank, thank you very much. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I should defer to the poet in the poet in the room to, to give it some. Kind well, I'm of I'm very I, I'm a very different sort of poet. I mean, I'm I'm all about reclaiming the, reclaiming the great tradition and queering it and, and and doing everything to some extent in quotation marks. Whereas you, 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 yours is the poetry of straightforward, clear utterance, which is not my thing. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Well, I, I've have certainly found from from reading your stuff very much is my thing. Yeah. Although I well, I speak as a non-expert. I'm the I'm the non-poet in the room, so <laughs> yeah. I shall. Well, I'm, Every, I'm grateful for the. Everyone's for the a poet plug. eventually. <laughs> I'm grateful for the for the plug. That's very oh, you're, you're very very welcome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for spending this time with us. As I say, I really do love your work, and I'm I'm so happy that you found the time to talk to us. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yes, indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, thanks, Alex. The work on this uh, map, this diagram, was all done in his spare time. Uh, and they would throw ideas at him which had to be elucidated over the weekend and he had to come up with some um, solution so quickly that he was afraid to go away in case something should happen. (laughs) When he did go away, uh, wherever he went, the little sketches would go with him. There'd be pencil sketches strewn everywhere. 
His, uh, his wife told me that uh, she was forever finding them under the bedclothes and uh, uh, in uh, bits, just stuck away in corners. Um, so I, I don't think he ever was free of it. It was a total obsession to him. So that was music for films when we were at Finchley Central talking about Undernight Streets. And this is more music for films. Hmm. Gosh, all of these extras that these lovely people get from us. Well, I mean, our audience demands more... Not only quality, but quantity. More than just the, the, the main meal, the main serving of the broadcast show, but we should offer them a delicious garnish, what my... My uh, grandmother would refer to as a bonbouche. After dinner mince. So, here's Teensy a... Teensy after dinner mince. Sorry. So, here's a fun idea for an extra. Let's play Station to Station. So, Ross Caveney... What is Station to Station? It's a game where we go from one place on the Scala map to another place on the Scala map. Uh, and we travel through linkages of films. So imagine if, oh, I don't know, train spotting, which we've got out there in West London somewhere near Hammersmith, was an actual train. And if you got on board train spotting, it could take you on a magical journey. A and magical mystery tour, indeed. So the rules of our game are, uh, if you go and look at our Scala map, which you can find on thebeekeepers.com forward slash Scala Underground, you'll find a link to uh, the Scala Underground map where we've put a film made near or about every tube stop on the London Underground, all 267 of them. Some of the links are a bit on the tenuous side. Well, I'm still looking for the definitive film about Fairlop. Yes. Or, or it has to be said, Ricelip. Ricelip? Whereas other places, like Leighton, um, it was kind of a no-brainer. Yes, I mean, there are so many wonderful London tube stops. I mean, and, and places adjacent to tube stops. I mean, there's Perivale. I love the idea of Perivale, which has the, Hoover, the famous Hoover factory, the Art Deco factory. Yeah, there's an example of a tenuous link I made because I put no surrender in uh, because it's got Elvis Costello, who obviously did the, the song about the Hoover factory, in as a, a, a crap um, club, club musician. Well, there you go. So, uh, let's explain the rules of Station to Station. You go and look on the Scala map, you find a film at a station, and then whatever film we're doing in the next show, we have to try and find... The links. So the way it would work is if you uh, say, let's take the first example. Our first show was about the man who fell to earth at Stockwell. And our next show, the show that you just listened to, was Finchley Central, which is at, uh, uh, and the film there was Undernight Streets. So how do we get from, on the tube, from Stockwell, the man who fell to earth, to Finchley Central, Undernight Streets? On the actual tube, going from Stockwell to Finchley Central is easy. It's on the northern line. You just go via the Charing Cross branch. So you don't have to change, but we still have to get from Manifel to Earth to Undernight Streets. 
And how do we do that, Tim? Well, uh, an example of that might be that the director of The Man Who Fell to Earth is Nicholas Rogue. Well, Nicholas Rogue was the cinematographer on the film of Harold Pinter's The Caretaker, a financier, along with Elizabeth Taylor of The Caretaker, was a certain Mr Neil Coward. Good Lord. And who put a thousand pounds up uh, to make the Pinter film. And, of course, Neil Coward appears in In Which We Serve, which we talked about right. in the show, with Leslie, Leslie Dwyer, who's doing the voiceover in, in Under Night Street. So that's an easy one. So for this week's one, let's think about how we get from Undernight Streets at Finchley Central to The Company of Wolves. Which is our next show. Now, we've put that at Clapham Common. Why is it at Clapham Common, Ros? Because The Company of Wolves was based on a story by, and the script was largely written by, Angela Carter, who famously lived just off Clapham Common. So... That's quite an easy one as well. And the link there is Leslie Dwyer at Undernight Streets. And then David Warner is in the Company of Wolves as the father. Well, David Warner played Doctor Who. Leslie Dwyer was in Carnival of Monsters. Well, there you go. That's a link. But is Doctor Who... I mean, it's not really a theatrically released film. No, I think that's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? You might go and watch it in a cinema, though. It might be on at a convention, but I'm not... Are our rules going to include things that might be on at fan conventions, or has it got to be something you've got to pay to go and see? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of Doctor Who episodes get shown at the British Film Institute. So I suppose that one counts. Let's do a, a slightly more convoluted version of this, though. Let's try and work out how we get from Leslie Dwyer to Noel Coward to Michael Caine with the Italian job then of course if we've got Michael Caine in the Italian job we've got Michael Caine in The Man Who Would Be King Mm -hmm. with Sean Connery who is in Time Bandits and that links all sorts of things all over the place including David Warner who's evil in Time Bandits and absolute evil is uh, also the dad in the company of course Mm. so how do we get from Leslie Dwyer events so uh, Leslie Dwyer is in in which we serve with Noel Coward. Ah, yes. Who's in the Italian job with Michael Caine, who's in The Man Who Would Be King with Sean Connery, who's in Time Banners. Well, there you go. It's a fun game, and we'll, we'll play that game over and over again. <laughs> and if, if you're listening and care to join in, uh, tweet us a link. As, as we go on in the months to come, we'll, uh, we'll throw out these challenges because some of these connections will, will get uh, increasingly more difficult. Or tenuous. So there we were. That was Station to Station. Yes. Is it, there's that strange Muppet creature in, in the, the Bill and Ted films who suddenly appears and goes, Station. 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 What was that about? He's called Station. Hmm. That's that Station. And he says station. Station. A, a forerunner of Groot. Station. Groot. Station. Groot. Station. I mean, I could go on. Yes. It's it's the, it's the more zen version of Mornington Crescent. Well, and, well, I mean, station to station is the more zen version of Mornington Crescent. It is indeed.
Now for a show called Music for Films, we rather let you down on the film music, I feel. So this is a compilation for the next 15 minutes, you won't hear from me again. So we're starting off with the theme music from Coffee by Roy Ayers, of course. Then after that, the drums of Babatunde Olatunji, and that's a track called Cosmic Rhythm Vibrations. Then from that, we'll go into, uh, I think, the definitive dub track, Prince Fari and the Arabs in the right way. And then from that, we'll go into the acoustic version of Bowie's Quicksand. That's the, uh, the track where he references Alastair Crowley. Very strange. Then after that, two tracks by the master of Bollywood synth pop, Bappi Lari, the theme music from Virana, the Ramsey Brothers Indian version of The Exorcist. Then after that, Let's Dance for the Great Guy Bruce Lee, which is from a 1980 film called Mortia. And then we're going to end with a tribute to ABBA by, I think, the undisputed master of Bollywood music, R.D. Berman. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm living in a silent film Portraying him love's sacred realm of dream reality I'm frightened by the total goal Drawing to the ragged hole And I ain't got the power anymore No, I ain't got the power Twisted name on Garbo's eyes Living proof of Churchill's lies I'm destiny I'm torn between the light and dark Where others see their target Divine symmetry
वीराना इस फिल्म की कहानी एक कल्पना है ये एक मनघड़त कहानी है जो पुरानी लोक कथाओं और दंत कथाओं से प्रभावित होकर लिखी गई है इस फिल्म में भूत परेत चुड़ैल और काला जादू जैसी नापाक शक्तियों का जिक्र किया गया है जिनका आज की जिंदगी और असलियत से कोई वास्ता नहीं दर्शक इस फिल्म को केवल मनोरंजन की नजर से देखें हकीकत से इस फिल्म का कोई ताल्लुक नहीं This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.